0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Power for All podcast, a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. I'm William Brent, Chief Campaign Officer of Power for All. Today, I'm speaking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Rebecca Shirley, the Chief Research Officer at Power for All, about the increasingly important link between food security and renewable energy and what the data is or most often is not telling us about how to strengthen that link. But before we get into the data and find out what it tells us, a reminder, you can find a wealth of sector news, analysis, and data on our website, PowerForAll.org, and our platform for energy access knowledge, which is also known as PEAK. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter and other updates, and if you feel like making a tax-deductible contribution to PowerForAll, you can make a donation from our homepage. So enough self-promotion. Welcome Rebecca.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me, Will, and hello from sunny Nairobi.
0: Excellent. So in 2019, you were declared one of Africa's energy and power elite. So clearly, you must be doing something right. I'm biased, of course, we work so closely together, but I think you have one of the most comprehensive perspectives in the energy access sector on the state of data and evidence, not only for the energy sector itself, but also the sectors that stand to benefit from decentralized renewable energy. Food systems, arguably, are the most prominent of those beneficiaries. And you just published a policy brief on this topic. So related to that, warnings have recently been increasing about a steep rise in food insecurity, with millions of people potentially falling back into poverty because of COVID-19. So I thought we could start by talking about why this is important as it relates to energy solutions for the agri-food value chain.
1: Yes, you're so right. There are early indications that the direct and indirect effects also of COVID have already um, affected some of the key staple and cash crop value chains across the region. Uh, Limitations on supplies of imported inputs like seeds and fertilizers and pesticides, as well as extension services and even farm labor. Um, due to movement restrictions, is already affecting farm productivity. And that's compounded by disruptions to the distribution of crops and produce itself due to movement restrictions. Like here uh, at the Kenya-Uganda border, um, there's a major challenge around uh, border testing and the requirements for essential service licensing. We're also seeing similar things uh, in Southern Africa as well. And these are distribution chains which are highly sensitive to disruption, given the pronounced lack of proper cold storage and collection centers for perishable produce, which then exacerbates food loss and therefore um, shortages. And that's to say nothing of the locust swarms and the flooding that we're seeing in parts of Kenya, Ethiopia and Rwanda at the same time. Um, And then let's also remember that the lockdowns and social distancing have increased volatility on the demand side of this equation as well in terms of wholesale markets. So all of that, yes, has led institutions like um, the World Food Programme to project that the number of people who are food insecure in East Africa alone could double or more in 2020 So while emergency support is critical in the short term, lots of attention is now also on the longer term solutions for local and regional food system resilience. And that's where energy technologies come in, because um, energy technologies are solutions for heating, for cooling, for electricity to power motors are a part of the infrastructure that's needed to grow that resiliency, uh, especially in areas which have little grid access or unreliable access where they do have it.
0: Yeah, so I mean, you're talking about multiple disruptions all at once, right? Not just COVID, but also climate disruptions, um, and you know that's just going to increase over time. So, I know that you've spent some time taking a close look at at some of the key learnings uh, that are already out there in the in the review of literature on this nexus between decentralized renewables uh, and agri food. What would you call out is some of the, the key learnings from that review, Rebecca?
1: Yeah. Well, coincidentally, even before the pandemic, uh, increased focus on food security and energy access in this nexus was apparent through the literature because, as you just mentioned, of the growing influence of climate change on food systems, and that's already um, very apparent. So let me summarize what I'm seeing in the literature in five quick statements. One, is that investment in power infrastructure, while it's not the only enabler, is seen as a vi- as vital to unlocking productivity. The fact that the agriculture sector accounts for just 2% of total electricity consumption across the continent is itself a telling statistic. Uh, in fact, the World Bank has identified the major agricultural value chains that have high electricity value add, and that could represent a doubling of, of electricity demand by 2030. In terms of per hectare energy demand, some of the leading value chains will be things like poultry, floriculture, tea, and sugarcane, so the ones that are both power and heat intensive. But because of how important the crops themselves are, value chains like maize, rice, and cassava could represent more than 30% of processing demand by 2030. So, So point number one is that the opportunity is being sized, and it's big. Uh, number two is that there are several companies already entering the space, some large multinational companies entering the agro processing sector is a big market signal. And there's a wave of smaller SME-sized agribusinesses from fruit drying to refrigeration, milling, egg incubation also emerging. Um, In fact, last year, the IFC estimated that there are about 100 firms developing off-grid solar, so just DC productive-use appliances alone in sub-Saharan Africa, and then hundreds more involved in the distribution of them, mostly in agriculture. Number three, what I'm seeing is that this growth in post-harvest handling, processing and storage and value addition activity could actually spell major opportunity for workforce absorption as well which is also big given our new pandemic norms, let's say. Right now, agro processing is accounting for very few jobs across the continent. Um, Like in Uganda, uh, our neighbors, it's accounting for less than 3% of all jobs in a largely agrarian economy. So an entire arena of job creation could be opening up. And in fact, the ILO says that over the past 15 years, African governments that have effectively promoted agricultural productivity like Ethiopia and Rwanda have experienced higher labor productivity even in non-farm sectors and more rapid diversification of the labor force from farming into the broader economy. So there's some major co-benefit opportunities. But number four is that except for solar irrigation, um, most of these technologies in the agro processing and storage stage are very nascent and require significant investment to scale. Or they favor commercial farmers because of smallholder farmer limited financial resource. So lastly, number five, I would just say that there's a really big difference right now between the addressable market, meaning the theoretical market that is able to absorb a service like power or powered appliances, and the serviceable market, meaning the portion of that market that can actually pay for said services. Just as an example, again, according to IFC, solar cooling and refrigeration, which address storage and food loss, although these represent more than half of the off-grid appliance addressable market of US $11 billion, they have a serviceable market of barely US $200 million, um, because of affordability challenges. So finance, both consumer finance and company, company investment is a really big need. So those are sort of the, the five key takeaways from the literature.
0: That's a fantastic overview, Rebecca. I don't think I could have you know, imagined a, a more succinct summary. I think you know just to get to your point around addressable versus serviceable markets, I think at least from where we come at Power for All, a lot of the thinking that I've seen, and maybe you would agree, on this topic has been from the supply side. I, in other words, you know, what are the what what are the energy energy solutions that are needed? Um, but in fact, what I'm hearing more and more is that there appears to be significant disconnect with the demand side. In other words, what do farmers actually need? Um, so I'm wondering, you know, where or who does demand for energy come from in agricultural value change? And would you agree that there is this disconnect? And so why?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good framing, Will, Um, because yes, a lot of the argument for energy and agriculture opportunities is being forwarded by the energy sector, or the supply side, as you put it, partly because there's a symbiosis opportunity. See, decentralized energy service providers themselves, like mini-grids, equally benefit from agro-processing demand through increased revenues, thereby improving affordability for their end users and supporting what is hopefully a viable commercial mini-grid business model. But each of these agri-value chains that we're talking about is very complex and very specialized, both in terms of the equipment and the logistics, but also in terms of the supply chains, the players, the incumbents. So expecting mini-grid developers or mini-grid asset managers to also design these bespoke, tailored solutions for each value chain and then standardize those solutions so that that they can be easily replicable in hundreds to thousands of different communities, it's a tall order. So rather, if the demand for power or powered appliances was coming from within these value chains themselves, it would be more sustainable um, so that the business of it all doesn't fall to mini grids or so that the finance of it all doesn't fall on farmers. And this is the missing middle that is so well documented and so well written about in the literature. Let me say just a, a, a little bit more about that. In Uganda, for instance, the collapse of the cooperative as an organizing structure for farmers during the agri-sectors liberalization movement in the mid-1990s has left farmers with very little price negotiating power and with few linkages to the food and beverage multinationals, like the groceries and the breweries and so on, who end up just resorting to imports. So the smallholder farmers are caught in a cycle with informal middlemen or businessmen who are disincentivized from investing backwards um, so that they can maximize their margins. And all that means that there's very little demand for post-harvest processing right now in Uganda. Um, In West Africa, things look a little bit different, and the challenge is the low commodity prices for cash crops. It's a well-known story that um, America and Europe still today set the prices for commodities, like cocoa coming from West Africa. And the cost of farming on exhausted lands is going up, while the commodity price isn't, which is leading to debt cycles for farmers, and again, a limit on local demand for processing so I say all of that to say that the lack of market infrastructure across the board is the missing middle or the disconnect, as you said, sort of to answer your question. And as mentioned before, the governments and the private sector players that are addressing this gap and that are actively promoting stronger local markets, stronger value chains are the ones that are seeing the gains. And that was,
0: I think you mentioned Ethiopia and Rwanda as being good examples of that. Is that right?
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So from where you
0: sit and what you've seen so far in your own analysis, because I know that you and the PEAK team have done some uh, additional uh, analysis about, you know, the, the, the link between agricultural productivity and energy, what are you seeing as the opportunities from bridging this divide?
1: I'd say that there are major opportunities for bridging the divide. Our research team has been looking directly at the question of how do we identify high priority areas for impact? Um, at the local or sub-country level uh, for entry into different value chains. And what I'd say from that exercise, as well as from the literature and from experience that's being shared across the sector, um, is that public and private sector stakeholder partnerships are really important here to leverage the job creation opportunity, the food security opportunity, and this demand stimulation potential opportunity that we've been talking about of the agri-sector. And there are sort of a couple of key areas for potential opportunity. One is, as we've been talking about sort of in your question before, the reform of cooperative structures to aggregate farmer produce, to leverage economies of scale, to organize farmers around price setting and processing for value addition and basically create that demand from the bottom up. So that's number one. Number two is rapid and targeted deployment of Energy infrastructure technologies, especially like mini grids in village communities um, where grid access is not uh, currently available and village communities that are engaged in staple and cash crop farming to enable uh, technologies for yield improvement and storage and aggregated processing. So so the infrastructure is number two. And then number three, opportunities abound in creating incentives to increase access um, to micro and commercial finance for farmers and for cooperatives, and also for rolling out technology-specific enterprise training that is accessible to rural users. So basically, helping to reform cooperative structures and organizing the agricultural sector, deploying energy infrastructure, and then making sure that rural end users have everything that they need need to to become successful micro-enterprises. And the other thing I would add there, I guess, is that donors and development agencies and international NGOs also here, besides governments, can, can, I think, integrate agri-food Um, opportunities into their medium and long-term strategies to help combat food insecurity, um, especially in our post-COVID world. So that can look like, you know, pilots like the ones that we're helping to run in Uganda or results-based financing schemes, demand-side subsidies, challenge funds, um, or even just public-private consultative groups. So the long and short of it is there's a lot of opportunity um, for engaging in the sector and creating an impact.
0: Yeah, that's great. One, one thing I'm not sure I heard, but maybe I, I missed it, Rebecca, is just the need for better uh, collaboration and, and alignment between various stakeholders in the, in, around this issue. For example, ministries. Oh, of absolutely. Yes, and, and and just the lack absolutely. of that, and the continued uh, you know persistence of siloed action and siloed thinking. Uh, would you agree with that?
1: One hundred percent. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. OK, well, that's a I love it when when my guests go through a list that very clearly identifies what the opportunities are, what the challenges are. So kudos to you, Rebecca Shirley. Um, so last but not least, um, you know, you're, you're a researcher, you're a data scientist. What are the gaps in understanding that you still there still need to be filled uh, around this issue? Or Maybe the top two or three. Yeah, I know there's a, I know there's a lot, but if you could identify a couple, what would they be?
1: Yes, I could talk about this one all day, but let me just uh, highlight a few. I would simply say that the way to do all of the things that we were just talking about um, is where stakeholders need more insight. So as um, you know, as we were saying, uh, like the research that we're doing uh, for powering agriculture, what are the best value chains to target and how to enter them and where are the highest priority opportunity areas for impact? And what are the successful ways to incentivize aggregators or to extend supply chain linkages and to create sustainable markets um, what are the skills needed to ensure well-run micro across all of these diverse value chains? As we we're mentioning, they're also different. Um, so there's lots of areas um, of insight that still remain um, to be filled. And we are beginning to answer some of these questions with our Powering Agriculture and Powering Jobs and Utilities of the Future campaigns. So I think I'd encourage listeners to check out our website and data platform for more on that.
0: Yeah, I would also encourage uh, our listeners to do that. Uh, you can see our Powering Agriculture campaign page on the the main Power for All website, powerforall.org. And then the platform for energy access knowledge, which Rebecca alluded to is powerforall.org backslash So Rebecca, thank you so much. I, I think this has been one of the most informative uh, podcasts that I've been part of. So I just want to thank you for Uh, being available, and we'll look forward to seeing some more great work from you.
1: Oh, thanks, Will. It's my pleasure.